0: This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Look in your Bibles, if you will, to the first chapter of Judges. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got one in the chairs for you, the green chairs, some of them, and under the blue chairs, if and if you're here today, maybe uh, church and, and, um, and Christianity might be new to you, or maybe you don't own a copy of the Bible. I've, we've got one that we'd like to give to you. If you'll stop at our Welcome Center on the way out, and uh, we'd be more than happy uh, to put that in your hands. Um, in Deuteronomy 7, you will find, if you were to go back there, you'll find God's promise to Israel, and His promise to Israel sounded like this. Listen, As you go into the land, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to walk right in front of you as you go into the land, the land of promise. And he guaranteed them in Deuteronomy 7, here's my promise. If you'll remain faithful to me, he's going to drive out. I'll drive out the enemy nations. And and, uh, he will give you, God would give them victory as they... And as they did that, as they went against these enemies and drove them out of the land, and he'd give them victory and he would give them blessing and he would give them prosperity agriculturally in every other way. He said, you've got to go in and you've got to destroy the idols and the altars to the false gods. You cannot let them remain. They were not to allow their sons and daughters to intermarry with the pagans because he knew that if they did, that religion, that false religion, would stay within the homes, within the families, and would destroy Israel from the inside out. So they had to have faith, and they had to believe in their amazing God. And he said to them, verse 7, chapter 7, verse 17 to 19 of Deuteronomy 7 he said, If you say to yourself, These nations are greater than I, how can I drive them out? Don't be afraid of them. Be sure to remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. The great trials that you saw, the signs and wonders, the strong hand and outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, brought you out of Egypt. Remember that the Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you fear. But he told them, if you fail, and you disobey, and you fall into the worship of false gods, you're going to see, God told them, you will see my anger. I promise you that. And he would allow them, he said, if you fail to drive them out, I will allow you to be defeated. So let's begin today with chapter 1 of Judges, verse 1, and and see what what happens. All right, Follow along with me as I read. After the death of Joshua... Now, this gives us some historical context. Joshua was the leader who was appointed by Moses. Moses was appointed by God. And Joshua took them into the land, and he lived a long life. He lived to be 110 years old. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord. They went to the high priest and said, find out from God what he wants us to do. And that's what they would do. They'd go to the high priest, and the high priest would beseech God. Said, so God, what, what's your will? And God would reveal that to the priest Who will be the first to go to fight for us against the Canaanites? All right, we're in here, and there are these seven Canaanite nations that still remain in the land that have not been driven out yet. Who goes first? You know, uh, a lot of people don't always want to go first, you know. Who goes first? Who's going to be on the front lines? Who's going to take the first battles? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I've handed the land over to him. Now when it speaks of Judah and it speaks of him, it's talking about the nation, of the tribe of Judah, the family of Judah, hundreds of thousands of people. So that's God uses the term him because it was started, the, the forefather of this family called Judah was a man named Judah. And Judah was the one blessed by his father Jacob to be the first one and to be the one that would lead the rest of the nation. And so God continues that. Judah gets to go first. I've handed the land over to him. Now, he didn't hand the whole promised land over to Judah. As we will see, these different families, these different tribes, would go after and against the nations that occupied their particular territory. If you, view, if you kind of envision the tribes as like in the United States as different states, that might help you grasp the concept of what they're going to do. Judah said to his brother Simeon, Hey, Simeon. Come with me to my territory and let us fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your territory. So Simeon went with him. They teamed up. That wasn't something God told them to do. Some people want to say, see, it shows Judah didn't have a whole lot of confidence and did what God says. I look at it and say, hey, you know what? Teamwork is a good thing, you know? And uh, you go in and help us. We'll go in and help you. So they went in and they uh, attacked. And when Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek. The name means the Lord of Bezek. He was their king. Now, each of these little nations in in Israel, and when we think of nations, they were more like city-states. They weren't big nations. They were like cities and walled cities like Jericho was, and they had their own king. His name, Adonai Bezek, when Adonai Bezek, they found him, they fought against him, they struck down the Canaanites and the Perizzites. When Adonai Bezek, the king, and the king was to lead the people into battle, that was one of the roles of a king, he was a commanding general. When the king fled, he took off running, retreating, they pursued him, they seized him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. wow. God didn't tell them to do that. Why did they do that? Well, the explanation comes up next. And he understood why. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. So he said, I know why you did this. I've done this to 70 other kings as I've conquered them. And they ended up Begging from the table of, of my table for for their meals. When you cut off the king's thumbs, again he's a military leader. He can no longer hold a sword. He can no longer throw a spear. He's no good as a military leader. When you cut off the king's big toes, again militarily he's done because he cannot lead the people into battle. He cannot run. He cannot walk well. It was a way of saying you're done. It's over for you. And they did this to this man. Now, they lived under a law, the law of retaliation. You've heard of the law of retaliation. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You did this to 70 kings. We're going to do it to you. And they brought him to Jerusalem. Apparently, his people brought him to the city of Jerusalem. Now, when you think of Jerusalem, you think of the holy city. You think of the the temple and and the capital of of Judaism. It was not at this time. It was still owned and and, uh, occupied by pagans. So they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and they captured it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah marched down to fight against the Canaanites who were living in the hill country, the Negev, and the Judean foothills. Judah also marched against the Canaanites who were living in Hebron. Hebron was formerly called Kiriath Arba, and they struck down Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they marched against the residents of Debir. Debir was formerly named Kiriath Sefer. Caleb. Remember Caleb? He's outlived Joshua. Caleb was one of the two that survived. And he was uh, he was—he was the one that said, we can go and take the land. He's now an old man. And he said, he's part of this tribe. And he says, whoever goes down and captures kiriath Sephar, I'll give my daughter Aksa to him as a wife. Whoever leads the battle and wins the battle, you get to marry my daughter. Let's hope she was pretty. And so Othniel thought so. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Kenaz Caleb's youngest brother, captured it, and Caleb gave his daughter to him as his wife. And when she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. And as she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What do you want? She answered to Give me a blessing, since you've given me land in the Negev. Give me springs of water also. Water was so crucial to to their property because of uh, their agriculture and because of how dry it is there. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. He blessed her doubly. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law had gone up with the men of Judah from the city of Palms, which was uh, an oasis near Jericho. Uh, they went to the wilderness of Judah, which was in the Negev of Arad. Now You can go to a map in the back of your Bible and find the the geography of these places where Judges is speaking. It's all in the southern part portion of, uh, of Israel. Let's see, where are we? They went to live among the people, the Canaanites did. Judah went with his brother Simeon. Judah went with his brother Simeon, struck the Canaanites who were living in Zephath and completely destroyed the town. So they named the town Hormah. Judah captured Gaza. You've heard of Gaza. It's in the news these days. And its territory. Ashkelon and its territory. Ekron and its territory. They were pretty successful, weren't they? They're going through and they're driving them out. They're taking over the land. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country. But, sometimes the word but is a great word in the Bible. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, who is rich in mercy and grace, has made us alive. That's a great but in the Bible, but there are some bad buts in the Bible. And this is one, but they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. We can't beat them, Lord. They've got greater technology than we have. Judah gave Hebron to Caleb, just as Moses had promised, and Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak who lived there. At the same time, the Benjaminites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. Now, they had already gone to Jerusalem, and they taken Jerusalem, but they didn't take it completely. They didn't occupy it. They burned it. But the Jebusites still lived there, and Benjamin, that tribe, could not drive out the occupants of Jerusalem. And the Jebusites, the author says, have lived among the Benjaminites in, this, in Jerusalem to this day. So when the author, most people believe the author of Judges is Samuel. When he wrote this, Jerusalem was still in the hands of the Jebusites. It was not freed from the Jebusites until David was king. And then he took the city of Jerusalem and made it the city of David. He made it his capital. The house of Joseph also attacked Bethel. And the Lord was with them, the sons of Joseph, his, his son's tribes, They sent spies to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. They sent spies to Bethel. The town was formerly named Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the town and said to him, look, if you'll show us how to get into town, we'll treat you well. And so he showed them the way into the town and they put the town to the sword, but released the man and his entire family. Well, then the man, this probably was a mistake because the man went to the land of the Hittites, who are other enemies of Israel who need to be driven out of the land. And he built another town named it Luz, and that's its name to this day. So they did, you know, he helped them, but that wasn't such a good deal. We'll talk about that in a moment. At that time, Manasseh, another family, failed to take possession of Beth it and its villages of Tanakh, and its villages are residents of Dor, and its villages are the residents of Iblion and its villages, or the residents of Megiddo and its villages, the Canaanites refused to leave the land. They said, we will not leave. You can't drive us out. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out completely. They didn't drive them out. They said, well, since we can't beat them, we'll just make them our slaves. At that time, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived among them in Gezer. Zebulun, another family, failed to drive out the residents of Kitron or the residents of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them and served as forced laborer. Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko or Sidon or Alib or Akzib or Helba or Af. You say these names, all right? And. Uh, Verse 32. Those guys. The Asherites lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land because they failed to drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Bethana. They lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land, but the residents of Bethshemesh and Bethanoth served as their forced labor. The Amorites forced the Danites. The Danites, the Dan was one of Israel's family. The Amorites were one of the occupying nations that needed to be driven out. The Amorites <laughs> forced the Danites into the hill country and did not allow them down into the valley. The Amorites refused to leave Har Haris, and Shalban. When the house of Joseph got the upper hand, they began to win. The Amorites were made to serve as forced labor. The territory of the Amorites extended from the ascent Akrabim, that is from Selah upward. Now, if you get the picture, over and over, they failed to drive them out. And many on many occasions, because they couldn't drive them out, they said, well, we'll just make you forced labor. We'll force you to come and work for us. Is that what God told them to do? God said, drive them out. Clean them out of the land. Push them out across the borders that I've given you. Out of the country, they don't belong here. Don't let them stay chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? We've seen him before. We saw him he appeared to to Joshua right before the battle of Jericho. And Joshua saw him as he was was checking out the the land and how they would attack Jericho. And, And he saw this this man brandishing a sword. And he said, who are you? And he says, have you you come to fight for us or against us? And he said, I haven't come to fight for you or against you. I've come to take over. And it was the angel of the Lord. Abraham met the angel of the Lord. The Bible says the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Who was the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance. And he did this On several occasions throughout the Old Testament pre-incarnate means before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem you see Jesus is God and God is eternal and so he would make special appearances and he's always described as the angel of the Lord and he would come and speak to men about specific things and warnings oftentimes but also promises the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. Right Again, this is how we know who's speaking. He's talking about his covenant with them, with the people who are living in this land. You are not to make a covenant with the people who are living in this land. The covenant, by the way, is found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 to 13. You're to tear down their altars. But, he says to them, after all that we just read in chapter 1, they failed, they failed, they failed, they failed. They feared. You've not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Or, could be read, why have you done this? Why have you disobeyed me? Therefore, because you have, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. I won't go before you and drive them out. No, because you failed to disobey me. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord has spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. And so they named that place Bokin, which means weeping. They named that place Weeping and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Then what we have, you jump to verse 6, and it's kind of like a parenthesis here, because we've already been told in verse 1 of chapter 1, after Joshua died, now Joshua is alive. He didn't come back from the dead. This is just an explanation. And this is really a rehash of the end of the book of Joshua, is what this is. It gives us some historical context. Joshua sent the people away. Once they got into the land, he dispersed them and said, go and take your territories. And the Israelites went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance, each family to the portion of land that God had given them. that have been divided up to them. The people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime. Again, before chapter one, verse one, the people worshiped the Lord Throughout Joshua's lifetime, and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua, remember last week we said God, God ruled the people through uh, the, through Moses. He was the God-appointed leader, and then Joshua was the God-appointed leader. And after Joshua died, it was the elders who had had lived through the crossing of the the, the, the survived the traveling through the wilderness and gone across the Jordan River and seen the the possession of. Of um, of Jericho, and these elderly uh, men began began to lead the nation of Israel as a theocracy under God, the King. And these elders were godly men, and they worshipped God. While these elders were alive, they had seen these elders had seen all the Lord's great works He had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Erez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. And get verse 10. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. That whole generation that had crossed over uh, for those 40 years and had lived through the time of Joshua, that whole generation died. Now a new generation has come up. And after them, after that generation died, Another generation rose up who did not know the Lord, for the works or the works He had done for Israel. They had not experienced personally what God had done. They weren't alive in those days. Now, I'll remind us of this point as we go through um, go through this book of Judges. That this narrative is about the people of God, which was Israel. If we take it and apply it to us today, it would be the church. And I think the applications are very strong between what happens there and what happens in the church today. But I want you to know, as I said last week, America is not modern-day Israel. Please don't try to say this is talking about the United States. Although there will be some things that happen here, you'll say, man, that's what's happened in our country. But that wasn't the application. The country, this country, is not the people of God the churches. So what happened? How did they get to this point from where they had promised Joshua? Remember, Joshua issued them a challenge. We saw that last week. He said, go into the land and drive out the the nations and tear down their altars and tear down their false gods and occupy the land that God's given us. And they said, we will, we promise. What happened? That they stopped promising or did not keep the promise. That they would obey the Lord and drive out the unbelieving nations. Let me give you several reasons. Number one, they failed to obey the Lord's commands. They failed. They just didn't do it. Seven central and northern tribes failed to drive out the Canaanites from their lands. They drove out some, but they didn't drive out all. They, they partially obeyed. Uh, please let me say, partial obedience is not obedience. Right? They partially obeyed. Jesus never called anyone to follow him part of the way, did he? he? told his disciples that to follow him, and here's what it means: It doesn't mean accept me as your savior and then go off and do whatever you want to do the rest of your life. He said, "To follow means you accept me as your savior, but then I want you to pick up your cross. Endure persecution. I want you to have courage. He doesn't call a Christian. He never called any of us who are believers in Jesus to go part of the way with him. It's all the way with Jesus, or it's disobedience, and they disobeyed, they failed. Now, that doesn't mean that if I fail to obey him, and I don't give up everything to follow Christ, that I'm not saved. There are a lot of popular teachers who are teaching that today, but... All or nothing as a follower is not what saves us because we cannot be saved. You cannot be saved by your commitment or by your works. We're saved how? By God's grace. Meaning that nothing we have done in our past can save us. Nothing that I can do in my present or in my future can save us. Nothing I can do makes me worthy of his salvation. He saved me. Here's a simple way to say it, because he wanted to. By His grace. But once we're saved, once we put our faith and trust in Christ, in His family, the only way that we can possibly live daily in His promises is to faithfully do what? Give Him our all. All to Jesus, we used to say. I surrender. What's that talking about? That's not talking about how I get saved. That's talking about what I do with the salvation that He's given me. I give my all To him, Jesus said in John 14 15, If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. Love me. Keep my commandments. That shows me how you love me. Number two, not only did they fail to keep his commandments and they failed to obey him, number two, they feared the strength of the enemies of God. God typically typically works with us, meaning, He doesn't always exclude us from his works. God likes to take you and me and and to say to you and me, I've got a job for you to do to help expand my kingdom. I've got a calling for you. I've got a gift for you to help you serve in my church. I've got something I want you to do. I've got a neighbor in your neighborhood that needs to know Jesus. And I want to use you and your story and your kindness and your love to reach that person. The angel of the Lord doesn't show up and and bring salvation to people, typically, does he? He uses who? Us. We are his body. We are his mouthpiece. We are his hands. We are his feet in this world, and God loves to work with us. He, He wants us to join him, but their fear, remember we read it, they were feared, fearful of what? Iron chariots. Kept them from attempting greater things for God. And fear, here's what fear does in your life fear becomes a paralytic in your spiritual progress. That's what fear does it shuts us down, it stops us cold, it freezes us in our tracks. We see something bigger and stronger, and we just stop. I can't go there, God. I can't cross that fence. I can't climb that wall. I can't break down that barrier. I just can't, man, it's just too strong against me, God. And we forget, as they did, that God promised, I'll go before you. I think God could handle iron chariots, don't you? We forget that God is with us, and we forget that he can't be stopped by anything. We forget that. When Paul was teaching the Roman church about the enemies of God, the enemies of God's church, he wrote these words in Romans 8, 37. In all these things, all these things that work against us as a church, all these things in our culture, in our society, in this world, all the things that Satan can throw to stop at us to stop us, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. The prophet Hanani said to King Asa, we're not the Cushites and Libyans, a vast army with very many chariots and horsemen. When you depended on the Lord, He handed them over to you. Why? For the eyes of the Lord ranged throughout the earth to do what? To show Himself strong for those whose hearts are completely His. You want to be strong in this Christian life? Give your heart totally over to Him. Surrender it all, completely. Completely. To him, Number three, they compromised and rationalized their disobedience. They thought, well, you know, if we can't drive them out, they, they say they're not leaving. I, I saw on the news the other day about this parent that called 911 because her child would not put on her seatbelt in the car. So she called the cops. Dear not hello? I can't make my three-year-old put her seatbelt on. I won't go there right, very much right now. But They thought if we can't drive them out, we can't make them do what God's told us to make them do, then let's just allow them to stay, but we will enslave them. They said, let's take the lemons of our failure and turn them into lemonade. And God didn't want them drinking lemonade. If we keep them as forced labor, they'll work to make our economy greater than it could have been without their labor. And the problem was this lemonade, keeping the idolaters among them, would lead to their own spiritual corruption. Not obeying, not doing what we know we're supposed to do, quenches, the Bible says, it stifles the work of God's Spirit within us. Living obediently, you figured this out. If you've been a Christian very long at all, you, you know this to be true. Living obediently for the Lord is not easy in this world. It isn't. And you say, well, it's got to be easy for you, Rick. You're a pastor. It's got to be simple. Not so. Not easy for any of us. It's hard. And so we, when we can't seem to get it right, What's the temptation? You know what it is? Let's do the next best thing. You ever tempted to do that? Can't get it right, I'll do the next best thing. Number four, they suffered for their disobedience and lack of faith. Israel went from worshiping God to worshiping and doing evil in God's sight. And listen, in one generation, one generation, that's all it took. The previous generation must have failed to teach their children to worship God and obey his commandments. One commentator said the neglect of the fathers led to the apostasy, the false doctrine of the sons. The neglect of the fathers. A retired pastor shared with me recently that he had a conversation with the dean of a prominent Baptist universities. The dean is a Dean of the School of Religion at a prominent Baptist university. And the dean told him, he said that with each successive freshman class that comes into our university, every year, with each successive class, freshman class that brings in these Baptist students, there were kids from Baptist churches, and he said every year this freshman class of students knows less and less about the Bible. He was. A, how? What's happening? It's one reason I'm so excited about the curriculum that we're using here at Said Church as we teach our children on Sunday mornings. They're learning the Bible and their lessons, and they all help point them to Christ. But please hear me, parents. The church can't do it all. We're not supposed to. If you're leaving all your children's Bible learning and spiritual challenge to the to the church, you're failing to understand your major role as you. Parents, that you parents play in the growth and their grasp of the Bible and salvation and what it means to live as a Christian, you're called by God to be your kids' primary teachers. Not only do they need you to talk about spiritual things in the home, that's why we send things home with the kids for you parents to talk with them about what they're learning. They need to know that they need you to, to show them how it's lived out in your lives. Otherwise what happens is the next generation, our kids, Grandkids won't get it. But number five lesson from the story thus far is this God did not abandon them. God wasn't through with them. The angel of the Lord, Christ, appeared to them. And his appearance is clear evidence of his commitment to them, his love for them. Because if he didn't, if he just said, I just don't love them anymore, he wouldn't have come to warn them. He came up from, it says, Gilgal, which is the place of blessing, is what Gilgal means to Bochim, Him, the place of weeping. And that's what happens when you and I as Christians, when we backslide from the place of, of our calling to, to trust Christ and become like Him, we, when we move from that place to beginning, we begin to ignore Christ and we become like whatever the world has to offer. That's what we begin to live like. We move from the place of blessing to the place of weeping in our lives. And guess which one Christ would rather have you and me choose? He would much rather us choose blessing, wouldn't He? He wants us to experience the abundant life, He said, of His promise. And that is our promised land. Our promised land is living in the land of His blessing. When they heard the words Christ brought them, they were convicted by them of their failure and disobedience. And then He told them because they had failed to keep their part of the promise that He would not drive out the idolatrous nation nations, they, they then realized, you know what, we're going to struggle. This is going to be difficult. And their response was more than weeping. They wept, but they did more than wept. Sometimes we can be sorry for what we've done, but sometimes we're not sorry for what we've done. We're sorry that we got caught, aren't we? That kind of sorrow isn't about offending a holy God. When, when sorrow for our sin is real, it produces something the Bible calls repentance. Repentance shows itself in a changed life. And they knew, they knew we're sorry and we're weeping and there's tears, but that God's not satisfied with our tears. There had to be a cost. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be an atonement, something that God accepted that would wipe out their wrongs against him and bring himself and the disobedient back into a right relationship. So what did they do? They offered sacrifices. And here's how that works with us today in our relationship with God. We're we're not going to kill a goat up here today or a sheep or a lamb or a bull or a heifer. We're not going to do that. Here's how that works with us today. When a Christian sins, when we disobey God, when we fail to obey his commands the Holy Spirit who indwells you, if you're a believer in Jesus, begins to convict you of our sin. What does that mean? We become uncomfortable with what we've done. We sense from him that we've sinned and we know that we need to be rid of that burden of sin that always, sin always puts on us. How can I get rid of this burden that I feel because of my disobedience to God? And That conviction then produces godly sorrow within us. But unlike the Old Testament and unlike the people of Israel, we don't have to offer sacrifice an animal on an altar because our sacrifice for sin has already been offered on the altar of the cross when Jesus became our atonement, when he brought us back to God. And so our sin has been paid in full. It's not that we need a new relationship with God, our relationship with him is eternal. Israel's covenant with God was eternal. It can't be broken, but we need our fellowship with Him to be restored. And that comes through remembering that Christ died for that sin and our confessing that sin or sins. Agreeing with God, here's what confession means. I agree with God that what I've done is offensive to Him. And it doesn't belong in my life. And that confession allows you and me again to be free from guilt so that we can experience that fellowship, so that we can be blessed by the promises that God's given us. And then we then understand in a new way the burden's been removed and we've been cleansed from the guilt and shame of our sin. And communion, we're about to do communion, reminds us of this privilege that we have with God. Now some think this, when I trust Jesus as my Savior and he gives us my everlasting life, I can now sin however I choose, and it's okay because he has forgiven me. But that's an abuse of Christ's sacrifice. What happens in a born-again person is the Spirit of God makes us new. He makes us new. And with that Newness, he gives you and me a new passion and a new desire to live a life that pleases God, but we fail, so we confess based upon the sacrifice that Christ has made. The Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we had abandoned him, he's never abandoned us. Let's give thanks right now. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ nailed to the cross, enduring the pain and the shame and the horror of a crucifixion for crimes that he never committed, but that we commit every day. He died bearing that shame for for us on our behalf. And you abandoned him on the cross so that you would never abandon us once we believe. Thank you, praise you for his body. We thank you for his blood that was shed. And that as he bled and as he died, our sins, the Bible says that blood covered our sins and made it possible for our forgiveness, for our redemption. The price was paid in his blood. We thank you that although we did not deserve it and we were not, there was nothing about us that was worthy, You found us worthy. It's amazing. We give you praise for that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Help us learn today, God, from the people of Israel. Help us learn the lessons that you're going to go before us. You just ask for our obedience as you do. Lord, when things seem impossible, when they seem difficult, when they seem hard, when they seem like there's no way we can do this, help us to remember who you are. You're the God who parted the Red Sea. You're the God who, did, who, who brought water out of a rock. You're the God who stopped the flow of the Jordan River. There's nothing too difficult for you. We just need to trust and drive out from our lives those things that the world bombards us with every day. Not to rationalize and not to keep things if we can't get rid of them, not to say, well, it's not so bad, I'll do the next best thing, but Lord, to drive them out, to rid ourselves of those things that pull us away from you. Bless this day, Lord, as we honor you with it, and I pray that you'll bring us back Next week, I pray, God, that you'll give us a week this week of conquering uh, the things uh, that are in our lives that would pull us, direct us away from worshiping you, that we would see you go before us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others. Reach the world.